Everyone wants to live a truly happy and fulfilled life. But the question is, how do we do that? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. The Bible has some very specific advice on how to live a fulfilled life, and it isn't full of more tips on how to make ourselves number one. We'll talk about that today in our lesson entitled, The Way to Live a Truly Happy and Fulfilled Life after we're saved, and it's not what many expect. Let's start with anchoring ourselves in where we're going, where we are in going through the Bible. We're in the book of Exodus. The children of Israel have been redeemed out of Egypt and are on their way to the promised land of Canaan. This part of the Bible is often viewed not only as a history of what truly happened, but as a picture of the redeemed Christian on their way to heaven. There is quite a bit of territory to be covered between this earthly journey and meeting the Lord face to face. And so it's important to ask, how does God expect us to live on this journey? First, we need to remember that God did extraordinary miracles to redeem the people out of Egypt. And in the New Testament, Jesus died on the cross to redeem us from our sins. Without his work, we'd still be lost, slaves to sin and the miserable results of it. God's actions remind us that, as it says in the Bible, we were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.23 says, Our salvation is a free gift, but a price had to be paid, and we couldn't pay it. Revelation 5, 9, and 10, it's kind of an interesting passage at the end of time. It sums up both the price and the ultimate purpose of our redemption when it says, and this is talking about Jesus, you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. That's us. Jesus bought us with his blood and wherever you're listening to me and I know people listen to the podcast and watch the videos because I see the little statistics online from all over the world wherever you are we're in this together Jesus bought us with his blood in summary we were purchased in that way for a glorious future and then Because of that, the Bible tells us what is expected from us on our journey. Exodus 19, 4-6 is one of the first clarifications of what God expects from us when it says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then... Out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. From being a slave in Egypt and a slave to sin, to become God's treasured possession. There is no higher fulfillment than that. That is what we were created for. That is what we were made for. But it doesn't happen automatically. As this passage reminds us, obedience is the key. The details of what that means start here in Exodus. And the rest of the Pentateuch fills in the details. In these areas, we learn in these books how to worship God, how to relate to each other, how to regulate your personal life. Now, it's really a surprise to many people that following God's way of doing things is the true way to joy and fulfillment. 
Somehow, much of our world, even the Christian world, seems to think it's all about me. Me, 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 me. What makes me happy? What makes me feel good? And like the, But, like the old song says, I try and I try and I try and I try. And then the song goes on to say, and it's kind of a raunchy song, so forgive me, you know, I don't get any satisfaction. All of that trying to satisfy ourselves simply doesn't work. The great surprise, though, of the scriptures is that we are most happy, most fulfilled, most everything we want to be when we most closely follow God's will for our lives. The Ten Commandments give us a place to start, and we're first given them in the book of Exodus. We won't go over all of them in detail, but I'll go over some basic principles that will help. Now, I want you to begin to think of them as guidelines for true fulfillment, not just simply a list of what not to do. We'll read an overview of them, and then I'll give you one example of a commandment that people often interpret inadequately. I won't say incorrectly, but really inadequately. And I think you'll be kind of surprised on which one that is and what we have to say about it. In summary, here's the foundation, the Ten Commandments. Number one, I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 2. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor. Now, let's look more closely at one of the most misunderstood of the commandments. Now, before I talk about it, what do you think? Which one do you think that is? Just just kind of guess what you think that is. Now, Jesus, of course, as you're thinking about this, expanded the meaning of not killing and of adultery. And we often waffle about if we were really bearing false witness or if we were just kidding or if we were actually coveting or simply admire someone else's new whatever we wish they had. But beyond the clarification of not killing knowing that that you know Jesus said if you're just angry that you've uh, you know you've you've uh, disobeyed that command and if you just look at someone with lust that's adultery but beyond these we we know the expanded meaning of these what do you think is one of the most foundational of commands that is almost always not interpreted completely that one is Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, what does this really mean, and what are the implications of it? People most often interpret it as we shouldn't use God's name as a swear word or an expletive. And though we certainly shouldn't do that, I and many other Bible commentators think its total meaning is far more than that. And if we understand it correctly, it gives us a foundation for how to live as God's redeemed people. So hang in there with me on it. When I first started learning this and studying this, I know it just helped 
me in my Christian life tremendously. Now first let's look at its placement in the list. To tell you the truth, I don't think God would have put it as one of the top three if it was just against you know, if it was just basically, don't say bad words. It's the third commandment, following the most serious clarifications that we are to worship the one true God and not make an idol. It also seems a foundational one. Second, let's look at the plain meaning of the words. What does to take someone's name mean? If you take the name of your husband when you marry, or if you're a child of a family, you bear the family name and certain things are expected of you. In other examples, if you work for a prestigious company or go to a well-respected school, you bear the name of that company and school and again there are certain expectations. People expect more from a Harvard graduate because of the name they bear. When we take God's name, it is an awesome responsibility. The children of Israel were the people God redeemed from Egypt. They were known by his name. When we take the name of Christian, we are saying we are a person who belongs to Jesus. God takes our commitment to taking his name to identifying as his child very seriously. He says he will not hold the person guiltless who takes his name in vain. So let's examine more of really what that means. What taking his name in vain means in our behavior. Throughout the scriptures, the word vanity or vain is used to describe something empty, something useless. The whole book of Ecclesiastics is filled with exhortations to avoid a life of vanity, of emptiness, as other translations use the term. It's what Paul describes in Ephesians 4.17 when he says, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity or the emptiness of their mind. Vanity, emptiness, it's the Greek word mateotes, which means devoid of truth and appropriateness, perverseness, depravity, frailty, want of vigor. To take God's name in vain, then, means, instead of living a life of meaning and purpose, based on what the Bible teaches, and with the joy and satisfaction that comes with it, that a person chooses a vain, empty life, one that is devoid of truth and appropriateness, one that is filled with perverseness and depravity, one is frail and has no vigor in it. That is not a satisfying life. So let's continue to explore this idea a little bit more so that taking God's name in vain does not characterize our lives. Matthew Henry, who lived in the 1700s, this, what I'm sharing with you, is not a new idea. He was a very esteemed theologian and Bible commentator, and I love reading his commentaries. There are a lot of new ones out and lots of good stuff, but online you can find them. They're in the public domain now. He wrote extensively about every single verse in the Bible, and his material is still so good. And in commenting on this passage, here's what he says. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It is supposed that having taken Jehovah for their God, for all the people will walk everyone in the name of his God. He says this is what everybody does. You know, if you take someone as your God, you walk in that God's name. But he goes on to say, we take God's name in vain by hypocrisy, by making a profession of God's name, but not 
living up to that profession. Those that name the name of Christ, but do not depart from iniquity, as that name binds them to do, name it in vain. Their worship is in vain, their offerings are in vain, and their religion is in vain. As James one twenty six says, where it says, Those who consider themselves religious, and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Or, as it translates it in the King James, their religion is vain. This is also what Jesus talked about when he said in Matthew fifteen seven through 9 You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Just saying the right words or showing up for religious services isn't enough. In summary, we are to live up to the family name. The New Testament often refers to this as walking worthy of the calling that we've been called. We're to live in such a way that it can be said of us as it was said of the heroes of the faith, where because of their behavior after this long list of all these things that they did for God in obedience to Him, it says that God was not ashamed to be called their God. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that a challenge? That God's not ashamed of us. How sad I think it is for us to act in a way where someone goes, they're a Christian? Oh my word. That must cause our Lord tremendous sadness. But instead, we want to be the kind of person where someone would look at us and say, oh, if that's what a Christian is, Maybe I ought to check this out a little bit more. How do we do this? How do we develop this family resemblance? Where do we reflect that we belong to God? We won't learn it from the world around us. And the newly freed slaves from Egypt did not know what to do either. So Moses goes up on Mount Sinai for 40 days for detailed instructions. They needed to learn a new way to live in all of life. That's why the laws are so detailed. But then the question comes up. Does that mean we need to follow all the laws that are given in this section of the Bible? No, not at all. (laughs) Though we can learn from them. As 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us, all scripture is useful. But let me try to explain this a little bit more. Now, there is disagreement within some different groups, but most biblical commentators follow what the Westminster Confession of actually 1646 said, where it divides the Mosaic laws into three categories, moral and civil or judicial and ceremonial. Now, it goes on to explain that only the moral laws of the Mosaic Law, which include the Ten Commandments and the commands repeated in the New Testament, directly apply to Christians today. But let me explain to you each category in a little more detail, and I think this will help. First of all, we don't need to follow the ceremonial law. This includes all the rules and regulations for how the Israelites were supposed to worship God. They came out of a pagan society with no idea 
how to worship the one true God. They had to be taught in rituals and tangible objects. As we talked about in the lesson on typology, and please go back to that if you haven't listened to it or watched it, many of the ways of worship that they were taught were visual lessons that not only taught them how to worship the God who redeemed them, but they were also pictures of the coming full salvation in Jesus. As such, when Jesus came, these laws were fulfilled and they're no longer necessary. He, Jesus, was the final sacrifice. We no longer need animal sacrifices. When he died, the veil separating God and man in the temple was torn in two, and all believers could contact God directly. Now, on the judicial or civil laws, these are a little bit more complex. When they were given, they were for how Israel was to govern itself. They were newly freed slaves, and they were very much in contrast to the pagan nations around them. One particular thing, and we don't even understand this if we just read it because this is how we assume all laws are, but this was very, very different than the societies around them because the same laws applied to all levels of society. Many of these laws form the foundation for much of the world's civil law today, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, etc. Though how they are interpreted and how the penalties are carried out varies greatly between societies. One example is how theft is punished. There is a wide range of punishments throughout our world today. But regardless of the specifics, the clear lesson is that God wants his people to live just and orderly lives respecting the rights of others. And then we have the moral law. And this continues, this doesn't change. Because a moral law is an expression of God's character. And that never changes. Jesus summed this up when a lawyer asked him, Master, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The laws in these books work out practical ways we're to love God and our neighbors. Now don't just read them to get through them. Ask what you can learn from them. I found that reading or listening to them in modern translations really helps. The message translation is one I've especially enjoyed. Now one of the things I recently did is I got a Bible that had the NIV, the King James, the New Living, and the message translations all side by side. Now that in and of itself is a really excellent commentary on the meaning of some of the difficult passages. You can also use parallel passage tools on the Bible Gateway or other Bible sites to compare the translations. Now, here's an example of this. These are this is uh, from one verse, Exodus 34:12, and I'm going to illustrate that. First of all, in the King James, it says, "Take heed to thyself." lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land whither thou goest, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. Well, okay, yeah, yeah, whatever, what's that mean? Then in the NIV, it says, Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. 
Well, that kind of makes a little more sense. Then today's Living Bible says, Be very, very careful never to compromise with the people in the land where you are going. For if you do, you will soon be following their evil ways. Well, that adds a whole different level to it. But then in the message it says, Stay vigilant. Don't let down your guard, lest you make a covenant with the people who live in the land that you are entering and they trip you up. You see how all of these different translations are real commentaries on the meaning of the verse. And I encourage you, especially if a certain passage is really confusing, to read it in these different translations. It's available, like I said, on the Bible Gateway. If you um, use one of the Bible apps, all of them now, you can look up the different translations. And this is an excellent way to dig deeper in the meaning of these verses. Now, there's an additional explanation of the purpose of the laws, and this comes from the message introduction to Leviticus, where Eugene Patterson, who did the translation, reminds us, and and I'm quoting him here because this is just so good. This, This helped me a lot. He said, because the core of all living is God, and God is a holy God, We require much teaching and long training for living in response to God as He is and not as we want Him to be. In this book and the others in this section, this book and the others in this section are a narrative pause in the story of our ancestors as they are on their way, saved out of Egypt, to settle in the land of Canaan. It is a kind of extended time out of instruction, a detailed and meticulous preparation for living holy in a culture that doesn't have the faintest idea what holy is. And I would say most of us don't either. So let me just briefly uh, give you a little parentheses and clarification of what it means to be holy, what the term is. The idea of being holy is a key idea in both the Old and New Testaments. For example, in Exodus 19.6, early on it says, And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Holy comes from the Hebrew word kwadas. Most often it's defined as to be set apart, to be concentrated, to be sacred, to be used for holy purposes. These books define in practice what it means to be set apart, what it means to be consecrated, what it means to be used for holy purposes. And as a side note, yes, set apart can mean you'll be different. You may not be able to do or live or participate in the things that everybody else does. You may decide before God that is not what it means to really represent him well, to bear his name well, to be his child in your society. So you kind of kind of need to be forewarned on that. The rules and guidelines here are reminders. Patterson goes on that this holy God is actually present with us and virtually every detail of our lives is affected by the presence of this holy God. Nothing in our relationships or environment is left out. Once we realize this, the seemingly endless details and instructions of Leviticus become signposts of good news to us. God cares that much about the details of our lives. Read these chapters with a prayerful heart that though your circumstances might be different, 
that you invite God to help you be his child, that you bear his name well in every part of your life, set apart for his purposes in all you do. A simple summary of this is in Romans 12:1 and 2, and this, I think, sums up so well what becoming or being holy means in practice. And here's what it says. This is in the message translation. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. When you do that, taking all your life as an offering to God, you won't be taking his name in vain. You will be the living representative of the God who loved this world so much he died so that we can live free, clean, and good lives of meaning and joy. You will then walk worthy of your calling. You will be someone who God will not be ashamed to be called your God. And that is how to live a truly happy and fulfilled life. That's all for now. Please check out the show notes and other materials at www.bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.